Hello fellow time travelers, we are now part of the Direction Point Podcast Network, a podcast network specifically devoted to Doctor Who podcasts including the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, the Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast, and Time Streams. You can find the Direction Point Network at directionpoint.org. Check out all of our sister podcasts and enjoy your travels. Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. It's the entire Who-niverse. On Shuffle. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels and that is compulsory... Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the shadowy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because we apparently do this in secret or something, I I, I don't know, I'm running out of adjectives. <laughs> My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not-at-all shadowy three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, <laughs> that would be me... There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. I am back from wandering the moors for two months. Oof. <laughs> How are the moors? Well, who can really afford to wander them for 20 years anymore? I mean, it's just the cost of living is ridiculous for the moors these days. Right, but at least there's plenty of peat. So I, Yes, all the peat you can burn. All the peat you can burn, <laughs> yes, and even plenty to eat. Ugh, that sounds disgusting. Well, if you like what you're hearing, though obviously that's questionable, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PPS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've established your own blessed plot to keep them in. 
people who have seen the episode will get that one. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We finally, and I mean finally, finish the key to time season with our discussion of Terrence Dick's novelization of Bob Baker and Dave Martin's script for the Armageddon Factor. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Armageddon Factor, adapted by Terrence Dix from script by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, that aired from 1-2079 to 2-2479, published by Target in June 1980. As of this recording in January of 2022, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 127 pages. This is the end of what I believe is the only time that we are reading a set of stories, both in story order and publication order. The last three books were published sequentially in the months before this one, with this one being published in June, which must have been a treat for kids at the time, as such treats go. Then Philip Hinchcliffe does The Keys of Marinist in August, and the treat turns into a trick of the violence nature. Well played. And yes, that's the last Hinchcliffe joke I'll be telling for now, unless he decides to do another book. We've read adaptations of Bob Baker and Dave Martin's work before, but this is the last time they worked together as a writing team, though presumably it wasn't because of this story. This is their eighth script for the series, and the next year, Bob Baker would write Nightmare of Eden on his own. He went on to write for the Wallace and Gromit series, even having a character named after him, and also wrote for the Australian K-9 series, which was based on the character he co-created with Dave Martin. Dave Martin died in 2007, and until Bob Baker's death this past year, he was the last surviving writer from the Pertwee era. So there are no longer any living writers from the Pertwee era, which is very sad. Speaking of K-9, this is the last time that John Leeson voices the character, for now anyway. Leeson decided not to return for the next season, but he would return to the part after the following season for reasons we'll get into when we get there. It's really quite complicated and strange. This is also the last appearance of Mary Tam as Romana. Her displeasure at how Romana had developed led her not to want to continue for another season, but producer Graham Williams decided to wait to see if he could convince her otherwise, just as he had done with Louise Jameson the year before. The difference here is that her departure is not written into the script at the last moment, as Leela's was, so it will be handled, let's just say, differently. We'll talk about that next time. Well, it's an effective surprise, because I had no idea until just now. <laughs> yep. That's how we all felt when we watched the show, in fact. Williams even went so far as to intimate that he'd be willing to release Tom Baker from the show if he could keep Mary Tam. Huh. Which shows you just how bad relations between Graham Williams and Tom Baker had gotten by this point. Damn. <laughs> yeah. It was during the production of this show that Tom Baker threatened to quit if he wasn't given more creative control over the show. He was not given that creative control. 
but somehow it came back for another season and then another after that and finally would leave. So we've got two more seasons of Tom Baker. Mary Tam did return to the role of Romana on audio for Big Finish, though, doing seven new audio plays as Romana alongside Tom Baker, which were all released in 2013. Unfortunately, she was also suffering from cancer at that time, and these were her last performances. She died in 2012 at the age of 62. So we lost her tragically young. As for the other actors in the story, there are a few noteworthy bits of casting. Princess Astra was played by Lala Ward, whom we will eventually talk much more about. The Marshal was played by John Woodvine. And Barry Jackson played Drax, who was originally meant to be a character in The Hand of Fear back when it was a very different story with Time Lords and everything. The Black Guardian was played by famed actor Valentine Dial, whom sci-fi fans will also remember as the voice of Deep Thought from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Deep Thought? Do you have... have you... An answer for you? Yes, I have. There really is one? There really is one. To everything? The secret of the universe, the great question of life and everything? Yes. And are you ready to give it to us? I am. Now? Now. Wow. <laughs> Though I don't think you're going to like it. What a great credit. The voice of deep thought. Exactly. Dial was brought in when Cyril Luckham, who played the White Guardian, was unavailable. Both those actors would return in their respective parts later in the series, so no, we've not seen the last of the Black Guardian or the White Guardian, unfortunately. And speaking of Hitchhiker's Guide, this is the first story to get any sort of editing from new script editor Douglas Adams, who oversaw the final scenes of the story. And on screen, it really shows. There's also a big mistake in this book. Well, one of many, as it turns out. <laughs> on page 24, the Marshal introduces himself as the Marshal of Zeos instead of the Marshal of Atrios. And Dalton, when you and I talked on Friday night, you said you noted that and got confused by it, and you weren't the only one, as it turns out. I thought there was something like that, and then I thought, well, I just misunderstood. Nope. It was a full-on error, and there are several in this book like that. It had me going back and reading two or three pages over again to see if I somehow missed something. Nope. You didn't miss a thing. The copy editor for this book obviously did, because <laughs> whatever mistakes Terrence Sticks made in the manuscript, they seem to just have stuck there, and I'll point them out as they come up. <laughs> Some sort of labor strike? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I do know that Terrence Sticks was probably writing these sequentially since they were being published sequentially, and as our good friend Jim Sangster has pointed out on his blog and his entry of this, this is when we come out of the bad run of Doctor Who novelizations. This is when the novels can be said to be strictly strict to page and no frills, no fuss, no ma'am, not very good as well. But given what we find out later, maybe the Marshal of Atrios introducing himself as the Marshal of Zeos is maybe a Freudian slip, or maybe even Terence Dick Scott confused, but who knows? Anyway, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Dalton, would you be willing to do the honors this time? Yeah. Some time ago, the White Guardian, one of the most powerful beings in the cosmos, had set the Doctor an urgent task to find and reassemble the six segments to the Key of Time. 
The Doctor and Romana had successfully retrieved five of the segments, and now they had reached the planet Atrios in the middle of an atomic war to search for the last, most vital piece. Sinister dangers await them in this final stage of their quest. Dot, dot, dot. Very good. Ah, well, yeah, sinister dangers await us too as we get into the discussion of this book. So, (laughs) Allison, what was your first impression of this when I sent it to you? That I had crossed state lines to avoid this story arc of the six-part key of time. <laughs> and I didn't stay gone quite long enough. No, I, I think I was here for two parts yes. of the key of time. So my first impression of the cover was that it looked like a domestic drama about alcoholism and divorce more than an adventure story. And I'm still not sure what character the woman is meant to be. Oh, that's Romana. Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure it was Mon- Romana or Astra. Yep. Um, In fact, I think that might be, I may be wrong about this. I think that's the only time. She seems considerably more hardened by life than than I envisioned her uh, previously. (laughs) Well, I will say, if I could go through it backwards, the ending was considerably more interesting than I was expecting. Oh. Before that, it was extremely pedestrian in an inoffensive way. Okay. That's probably better than being completely pedestrian in a very offensive (laughs) way. Well, it, it's common that we feel strongly, positively, and negatively about different parts of the same books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That a book is written very much the author's own, I really like this, I really do not like that, etc. This is not a book to feel very strongly about. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, I get that. So it started off, you know, perfectly pleasantly, but I did not strongly engage with it at any point along the way. Nor did I wish for death. It was just, eh, it's fine. <laughs> it was just very much there. Okay. And Dalton, what was your first impression? Yeah, with a name like the Armageddon Factor, I was expecting it to be higher stakes with it being the last in the story arc. I was expecting to see more of the Black Guardian than the White Guardian. I thought that this would be, with it being a story to to end the season with, that it would just be bigger in some ways. Mm -hmm. And as I'm reading it, it started to kind of peter out like the the idea of two planets fighting and a nuclear war yeah that's big but then we find out that they've basically obliterated each other to the point that there's not much left of either of them Mm -hmm. so yeah like allison was saying it just is kind of underwhelming in a way that it felt odd to me with with it being this uh, pinnacle of the story yeah exactly We've seen that story done much more engagingly before in these adaptations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two societies on the verge of obliter- obliterating one another. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Genesis of the Daleks, for one. And that had yeah. much bigger stakes involved in it than this does, even though the stakes here are literally control of the entire universe and everything being destroyed because the Shadow and the Black Guardian want to do exactly that. But it doesn't feel like it has those stakes, does it? Mm-mm. Now, I think the Black Guardian was new to me, perhaps mentioned before, but just in sort of a passing ominous reference. Mm-hmm. So had we previously seen the Black Guardian? We had not seen him, no. We were told about him in the first book, The Rebus Operation. But the way that book was written made such references so oblique <laughs> that it might have been very difficult to process it. And then we didn't hear about him again until I don't think he's mentioned at all in Pirate Planet. I think it's not until Stone's Blood that we hear about him again. 
And you were not on that okay. one. And Stones of Blood, I didn't read. But okay, that, that sounds right, that there was some reference to there is a Black Guardian, but I didn't recall any content other than this sinister figure probably exists. Yeah, I think in the adaptation of Rebus Operation, Romana Nare knows about the White and Black Guardians, but that's not the way the actual season goes. She thinks she's working for the president of Gallifrey when actually it was the White Guardian in disguise. So there's a whole thing there. And later books refer to that, but... Ian Martyr, of course, goes his own way, as he usually does. It's kind of telling that the best books from this season are one that went completely off script and one that was adapted 40 years later. <laughs> that really does tell you something. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I'd say so. Well, obviously, it sounds like we have lots to not really say about this one, but <laughs> let's talk first about what we actually did like. What did you like? that you can recall i feel like k9 had some good bits in, in this story uh, as annoyed as i was with romana's part in how everything played out i felt like k9 was kind of the star companion mm. you know romana got kind of relegated to the back and even k9's bits weren't as wonderful as we've seen in the past there weren't there weren't as many bits where there was good banter between him and the doctor you know some of the puns we're used to seeing but i i enjoyed k9 yeah the bits with the shadow taking control of k9 are a little bit tense but they go by so quickly that even on screen that's the action of maybe one episode and on the page it's only a few pages really he's taken over he threatens the doctor and then he's out of the shadow's control so yeah i'm wondering too if i missed canine a little bit since the past the last two stories we haven't really had as much of him yeah and i i think that's a lot of it too he really doesn't figure much as a character in any of the other stories as much as this one he gets quite a bit to do in this one especially when he liaises with the warlord of zeos the actual marshal of zeos the, the computer mm -hmm. yeah what else if anything I thought Drax was fun. I mean, we've seen many characters like that before. He's, he's not much of a destroyer as Drax's go, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, added some humor. I often have several lines I thought were fun written down from Dick's adaptations. I, I only have one written down this time. That's right. We've got him exactly where he wants us. <laughs> yes. So there's some fun things like that, but I, I agree with Dalton that there's a lot less banter than there ordinarily is. This is the opposite of being paid by the word. I felt like someone was being rewarded for economy. Yeah, and that may be precisely what's going on. Because, well, let me have you hazard a guess. How many episodes would you say the story was? Four. You'd be right in guessing that, but it's six. This is an adaptation of a six-part. Well, so I would be wrong in guessing that. You'd be I right in guessing that there are four episodes worth of story. <laughs> I'd be sympathetic, yes. but I'd still be wrong. Yeah, yeah so. you, well, you'd be wrong. I'm giving you credit. Goddamn, I rarely do that. So take it when you can. Jesus Christ. Anyway, yes, it's a four-part story that's been stretched to a six-parter because... It is the end of a season, and the unfortunate truth of Graham Williams' time on the show is that his season finales are not very special stories. They seem to be special stories. They have high concepts, but there's simply no budget to pull them off by that point. In fact, one reviewer called this Star Wars on a BBC budget. Oh my gosh. Kind of is, too. Yeah. 
but I completely agree with you about Drax. I adore Drax, actually, and on screen, his rapport with the Doctor is lovely, and with his introduction, the number of Time Lords we've now met who do not reside on Gallifrey, counting the Masters one by himself, goes up to four, and we'll get another one next season, and in the next decade we'll get two more and a possible third, so all of these renegade Time Lords are starting to add up a little bit. It's like all the jokes about 20% of Canada is working in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> temporarily, you know, not, not, having not immigrated, just, you know, working there for a while, but maybe there's a, a similar Gallifreyan sort of working adult population in exile. <laughs> yes. I had a moment where I thought that Drax may have been the master, Oh, really? Uh, well, whenever he gets the the shrink ray, basically, and he shrinks the doctor, I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> that would have been a great twist. That would have been a yes. great callback and a great season finale story, you know, bring back the master. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is the shadow, but also the master is in cahoots with him or somehow the master got roped into his plan, but... No, and I enjoyed Drax. That's that's not to say I didn't enjoy him, but I thought that that could have been like something to just take it up a notch, take it up mm -hmm. another level of like intrigue, of like, oh crap, the shadow has the master in with all this. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that would have made for an interesting pairing. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a later story that kind of does that, but I can't tell you what it is because, you know, then you'll know. But uh, there had been talks of bringing the Master back several times in the last two seasons, but it just didn't happen. Yeah. And it's a pity, though I, I do adore Drax, especially the way he's presented on the page, because Terrence Six actually does expand on the story just a little bit, but only in scenes like that. Drax, for instance, on the page in addition to noting that the doctor has his doctorate, which is something we've never been sure about <laughs> until now. Yes, I did like that. He says that Drax had heard about the doctor's trial and his exile, mm -hmm. and he calls the doctor naughty naughty for stealing his TARDIS, and then makes a point to point out that his own TARDIS was not nicked yes. in the same way the doctor's was. Yes. And if you can imagine this guy talking with a Cockney accent, that is absolutely the best part at a time when... Just about every actor on television had to act with received pronunciation. And this character, who's a Time Lord, is absolutely not doing that. <laughs> I do like the doctor asked him, so not, not to be, not to pry, but uh, where did you pick up that accent? Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> exactly. There's also one other bit, and this is something that I remember at the time, people just kind of going nuts over this and saying, oh, we know the Doctor's name now. No, we don't. Theta Sigma is not his name, and Terrence Dix tells us it's more of a Time Lord coding. Probably something like Player 456 from Squid Game. It's that sort of thing, rather than an actual name. It still didn't keep loads of people from claiming that we finally knew his name. It's like, no, it's a school nickname. Give it a rest. His number turns out to be 486, and everyone decides his real name is Quadra. <laughs> exactly. 
Well, but now we do know that he has an earned degree. It's not just an honorary title. Yes, even though Romana told us at the top of the season that he scraped by with 60% of the third attempt. <laughs> yeah. So he just about got it. Probably didn't finish his dissertation. His dissertation defense was a mess. <laughs> Doctor is <ABC>. Yes. <laughs> for hundreds of Oh, God, years. he probably is, come to think of it. Drifting from one post to another. <laughs> Never eligible for tenure track. Nope. Well, we knew he barely scraped by, but I'm not sure we knew which program he was no. in. Could have been a master's. Uh, eventually we will. Oh my goodness, is that dif- the difference between the doctor and the master? Oh God, it might be. <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> we, we've cracked it. <laughs> the, master the, oh, the master has an MFA, Master of Fine Assholery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would have an MFA, Yes, he, he would. An unsold novel. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> He'd be a screenwriting MFA. They're the worst. Yes. <laughs> this is me speaking as somebody who has an MFA in poetry writing. Thinking of Dana Schwartz's guy yes. in your MFA. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Time Lord in your MFA. A little different persona, but they get along well. Oh, dear God. <laughs> so obviously we like Drax. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. We do like Drax. Yes. Dalton's idea would have worked well for a culmination of this story if the master didn't want to see the universe destroyed because then there would be no more sandbox to play in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And come to think of it, that's not too far from that later story that I referenced, that the master's involvement is more a case of, oh, you can't destroy the universe. I want the universe for myself, so fuck you. But yeah. What else did we like? I like that it's revealed almost immediately that the marshal is evil. There's no need to be coy about something so obvious. Yeah, because it really is kind of a waste of time on screen because you kind of figure that out the first time he goes to the mirror and starts talking to it. And it's like, okay, we, we know what's happening here. We know that he's going to put Astra in danger. Oh, that's the thing I wanted to ask about. At what point did you figure out that she was the sixth segment? Maybe halfway through. Mm. Okay. Relatively early relative to when it was officially revealed. Okay. I had thoughts early on, and the more that it went, I it was just confirmed more and more, especially when they talk about her being, what is it, the sixth daughter? Sixth daughter sixth, of the sixth house. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah. The sixth part, okay, yeah. The one place I doubted it is when uh, Romana is telling the doctor, isn't really matter what happens to me and the doctor says oh yes it does and i actually thought that the twist was going to be maybe romana had been the sixth part all along oh wow but she was in fact not it's not that creative a story (laughs) well there are a few things that you'd have to jury rig along the way such as the fact that anytime she's using the tracer would constantly be going off (laughs) so they'd never find anything this isn't exactly a finely constructed puzzle box of a story, so... No. <laughs> those things not being in place would not preclude someone having the genius idea at the last minute to write her out that way. That's true. And I didn't know she was going to be written out, but I did have the thought during the story that she was going to reveal, be revealed to be part of the key or the structure of the key that holds the six parts together or something like that. Yeah, as it turns out, uh, the Big Finish audios make a slightly different revelation about her that I'm not quite sure I'm on board with, but it it's too complicated to go into here. <laughs> Suffice it to say, it's meant to be an explanation for why she leaves. 
but I don't want to get into it yet because I'm not quite sure I understand all, all the ins and outs of it myself. But yeah, that could have been interesting, except I think they didn't even have that much notice. I think Graham Williams literally left it to the last minute, and then there wasn't even enough time to write a finale scene for her. The idea of the segment being a person, though, came from Douglas Adams way back when he was writing The Pirate Planet. That was one of his brainstorms, so... I mean, that seemed from, I will say, Pirate Planet's the last one that, that I read... That did seem to be what they were leading up to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With a person being at least one of the segments. Mm -hmm. I was actually surprised it wasn't one of the earlier ones. Yeah. Uh, I think for Pirate Planet, if they'd gone in that direction, it could have been uh, one of the Mentiads, perhaps, or even the Queen herself, Xanxia, being the segment, which would have complicated that story to no end, which we really don't want. No. (laughs) This one, if anything, is not complicated at all there's just a lot of complications because there's a lot of padding and it even shows on the page probably but yeah she is the sixth segment and that's about the only thing that's really a surprise in this one i noticed that Dix keeps trying to put in red herrings <laughs> yeah he's trying so for those of you tuning in the first for the first time who are not familiar with the full name of the human being terence Dix. <laughs> Well, yes. He keeps mentioning the circlet, the uh, gold circlet Astro was wearing. Yes. I think it's just to throw us off the scent, even though there's just so much there that kind of lets you know. But yeah, what do we not like? (laughs) (laughs) Where do we start? Well, I, I already said I did not like the treatment of Romana. I felt like she was pretty much an insignificant part of the story mm-hmm. she is a, a long way from the romana that we were introduced to six stories ago and this is basically yeah like the final nail in the coffin <laughs> yeah you can see why she decided to leave after reading the script she's probably like oh hell no <laughs> not this again yeah well i guess i've missed a decline of romana oh yeah Yeah, there have been moments of brilliance, usually in scripts written by Robert Holmes, who introduced her in the first place, but even there, she was relegated to a damsel in distress role. So her being captured here and tortured is just kind of more the same. And being dragged away kicking and screaming. Which doesn't happen on screen, so that's Dick's taking on some poetic license, which is neither a license nor poetic. She's not kicking and screaming when she gets captured. That is not a Romana-like behavior. No. No. Contempt is her MO. Exactly. Imperiousness. Exactly. Aloofness. Exactly. And she doesn't get a chance to do a lot of it here, which is really fortunate. Biting commentary about how he's not very good at this interrogation (laughs) thing. Yeah. That would have been brilliant, but no, the doctor gets those lines. And not many of those either, for that matter. I was going to say, it's not like the Doctor really shines at Romana's expense. No one really pops off the page here, other than, like I said, Drex. And we've seen many characters like Drex before. Yeah. And we do get occasional really great lines, like in Chapter 2 their banter about approaching a new situation. Now, listen, Romana, whenever you approach a new situation, you must always believe the best until you find out what's really going on. Then you can believe the worst. But suppose it turns out not to be the worst after all. Don't be ridiculous. It always does. Yes, I would do. <laughs> and here's the thing. I should probably talk about why I kind of enjoyed this book more than I thought I was going to, or at least the first time through, because I had to read it twice, as it turns out. Stupid me. The televised story is full 
of Tom Baker being Tom Baker. This really is a case, and this is one of the things that Graham Williams wanted to fire him over, because Tom Baker was at this point wagging the director and saying, hey, why don't we throw this in? And the director was like, yeah, sure, let's do that. And it's everywhere. So many scenes in the story are played for laughs that the character of Shap is played for laughs almost every time he opens his mouth which is hard to imagine when you read him on the page. There's nothing particularly funny about him. But the actor playing him sends up the character. For instance, when Shap is trying to follow them back to Atrios and gets in the shootout with the mute and ends up getting knocked unconscious before he transmits back, that's a comedic moment. So, yeah. I mean, he does seem pretty aggressively hapless. But there is that. I guess we're not seeing a comedic performance. Yeah, you're not seeing the performance. And that's probably why this reads better than it actually looks on screen. Because really, the only people taking their performances seriously are Lala Ward as Princess Astra and the actor whose name escapes me playing the shadow, but then he's kind of over the top anyway. What about Merrick, whom we are told is handsome, young, and virile? He is the biggest drip. Mm. Obviously, he's taking it seriously, but I think it's because, yeah. A little too seriously? There's just not much there to do with that character. And the thing is, I think it's written in the script. And I think Terrence Dix is deliberately trying to get us out of that mode and make this a more serious story than it is. Because the opening scene of the show is the scene from the melodrama that the Marshall's watching. Yes. It uh-huh. is every bit the piece of sentimental tripe that the Marshall says it is, but the line on screen when the man says, yes, I love you, my darling, but there's a greater love, and he's talking about, you know, love of country. The line on screen is, there is a greater love. Men out there, young men, are dying <laughs> for it. <laughs> <laughs> the one who's described to us is impossibly handsome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he has to go out there for the greater love of, of young, young men. men. Exactly. Yes. So it's there. It's there from the first thirty seconds of the show, and you're like, okay, it's going to be like this, isn't it? All right, fine. <laughs> So even the bits of menace in the story are not terribly menacing. Dennis the Menace. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, God, which I guess would make the shadow Mr. Wilson. That's it. Yeah, Yeah, that would make the shadow Mr. Wilson, which is just about right. It's a gritty reboot of Dennis the Menace. (laughs) (laughs) So I did kind of like that Dios's general slash leader turned out to be a computer is the whole human population dead well is that the implication the implication on screen is that because on screen the doctor's line is there are no zeons on zeos okay my impression was they were all killed in the war and the supercomputer continued to prosecute the war on behalf of a dead population but they're not but that's kind of a big moment and you think that it would be a little more explicit if that were the case exactly and i think dix decides to change that because on the page he says there are no zeons on this part of zeos and he says that they're on the other side of the planet possibly in hiding yeah but i thought that was something that was a speculation of one of the characters and then we never knew right Yeah, we're never told. Whereas on screen, we're just told there are no Zeons and we're never given an explanation. And the only implication you can take from that is that the shadow butchered the entire population. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they were killed in the war already or the shadow killed them or... Yeah. They left 
and left the computer to win the war and then they would come back later. There there were hints of maybe some interesting or darker things there, but mm -hmm. I, I thought maybe I just missed what the conclusion was. Nope. No, it's not there. It's not there. And you're right. That would make the stakes of the story more interesting if we knew that an entire planetary population had been destroyed just to get the sixth segment. Or rather, the other five segments, because he already knows who the sixth is. But no, we don't get that. <laughs> In fact, what we get is endless replays of the time loop. <laughs> Which we don't get on the page. Yeah. I think that's a space saver right there, because... Dix only gives us the time loop, I think, once or twice in the story. We actually see it playing out. On screen, oh god, I, I couldn't sit through it all. But it has to play out at least ten times. And you're like, Christ. That's one where Leeson actually did a really nice reading of that. Where, to the point where it, he read it in such a way that at first it seems like an audio editing error. Like the audio itself has repeated because he reads it in exactly the same way. Again, it's, it's a really nice effect. Oh, that's awesome. And then you understand what's going on and he explains it. Right. Yeah, when I was reading it, I was like, wait, that's exactly the same line. What is happening? And then I realized, oh, Dix is doing the time loop. Got it. Okay. Uh-huh. Let's do the time loop again. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just a hop to the right. Mm. Yeah. And luckily we don't get that on the page. Everything is faster on the page. And I mean everything is faster on the page. That is one of the good things. Thank God, because life's too short for over much of this content. That's for damn true. I mean, we do lose a few good lines, and you know this is a Tom Bakerism. Well, a few good lines have to die in order for the war to be won, I suppose. Yeah, essentially. There's a line when the Doctor first starts the time loop, and he says to Romana, Just imagine, somewhere someone's just slipped on a banana skin, and he'll be wondering forever when he's going to hit the ground. And it's this lovely comedic moment. But it's gone from the book, and probably it needs to be. We don't need this sort of thing undercut, because it already undercuts itself quite a bit. And it's no fair naming a chapter name after a much better story. <laughs> the Planet of Evil. Yeah, I'd much rather read The Planet of Evil again than... The bit on know. the nose for your evil yeah. planet. A little bit. I did like the, the description of the asteroid or whatever they're on it says uh there's a line that says the whole place had a strange organic feel like a rotten apple bored through by innumerable worms mm -hmm. <laughs> and you notice that dix gives us some of the best description there mm -hmm. and i think it's because he doesn't see what they do on screen because what they do on screen is the stupidest thing the shadows satellite is literally a satellite but inside it's described the way dix describes it so for some reason, it's got this beautiful exterior, but with this gooey, gritty, gothic inside, hmm. which is just silly. <laughs> so yeah, I'm gooey, gritty, gothic. It's all I could think of. I'm I'm trying to synthesize these adjectives. Think think of a Kinder egg, but with hell inside it. <laughs> wow. 
All right. There we go. <laughs> there I, we go. I'd be disappointed if I got that Kinder egg. <laughs> Most people, I, I think, think would be, be disappointed excited. by that. I, I don't know. There'd be, you know, lots of little kids named Damien that would probably enjoy the hell out of it. But... Look, I got the lament configuration. <laughs> well, I was... <laughs> you know, it's more perishable than a lump of coal, but... Well, I uh, was advising my nephew, who is now a college-age adult, that he was going to get coal for Christmas if he didn't ask for something more specific. And then I said, well, you know, coal's really a dying industry. Maybe it'll be natural gas. And my brother-in-law suggested wind. Both, they just sounded like, both sounded like he was just getting farts for Christmas. Um, but I should have offered a Kinder Egg containing hell. He might have found that quite interesting yes <laughs> yeah. exactly it's definitely a conversation piece that's yes. for sure <laughs> a faberge kinder egg with a model of hell inside <laughs> well that would be more interesting than the shadow satellite let's just say that oh god shadow satellite of love and hell <laughs> Yeah, the when the doctor is, is going through it and he makes the reference to a ghost train, it's like, yeah, I just pictured one of those stupid carnival rides. It's like, <laughs> like skeletons popping out of the corner. <laughs> or, or, you know, it shows up on the tracker and then the train doesn't arrive. Yes. <laughs> Dang it. We keep coming up with more engaging plot points than were actually say. given to us. What we're coming up with is far more interesting than what's on the page. Far it's... more humor and pathos. Oh, God. I mean, it's not terrible. It's just a, a non-event. Yeah. yeah. And it needs to be. Until the end. And I did not actually see the moment of megalomania, which I wasn't sure, even at the end, whether it was real or feigned for the benefit of the Guardian. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But it did come up rather abruptly in a way that that was engaging. So I felt like that it stuck the landing of of a very, very poor vault. That would be Douglas Adams. He's the one that came up with that scene. And so it was in the script. Now, the way Dix transcribes it, and I say transcribes quite deliberately, the way he transcribes it to the page, it makes the doctor sound like he's had a moment where he's almost lost control. Almost like, you know... I can't remember which character it is in Lord of the Rings, but when she sees the ring, she goes from being this beautiful creature who's on his oh, side yeah. to being, oh, I need it. You know, that whole yeah, thing. Galadriel. Galadriel, like, that's it. Yeah, having that moment. I will give you the one ring. You offer it to me freely. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired this. In place of a dark lord, you would have a queen! Not dark, but beautiful and terrible as the dawn! Treacherous as the sea! Stronger than the foundations of the earth! All shall Oh, terrifying. Yeah, and that's the way we're meant to think of it. 
because the key to time has that power. So even the Doctor, especially the Fourth Doctor, would be the first person to go crazy for it if he allowed himself to. But on screen, the moment is played for laughs. Right. I'll set the coordinates for Gallifrey, shall I? Why Gallifrey? Well, that's where we're going, isn't it? We have the power to do anything we like. Absolute power over every particle in the universe. Everything that has ever existed or ever will exist. As from this moment. Are you listening to me, Romana? Yes, of course I'm listening. If you're not listening, I can make you listen. Because I can do anything. As from this moment, there's no such thing as free will in the entire universe. There's only my will because I possess the key to time. Doctor, are you all right? Well, of course I'm all right. I suppose I wasn't all right. (sighs) This thing makes me feel in such a way I'd be very worried if I felt like that about somebody else feeling like this about that. Do you understand? Yes. How do you understand? That the sooner we hand this over to the White Guardian, the the better. better. See, I thought it worked on the page as ambiguity that probably what was going on is he really did genuinely have that moment, came to pretty quickly, continued it as a performance for the Guardian as he at the same time realized that this thing could not continue to exist. Yeah. If it had this influence on him, what influence would it have on, on the Guardian or, or the, the Black Guardian or others? Exactly. But you were telling us that we did not have this moment of realization and contemplation on screen? Not really. Tom Baker rolls his eyes back in his head and does his best villainous voice and says, because if you're not listening, Rolana, I can make you listen. You say he does his best James Dean. <laughs> well, no, not his best James Dean. No, this isn't a John Cooper Mellencamp song, thank you very much. No. No, he does, because Tom Baker plays villains quite well, as it turns out. He started that way, after all. But he does a villainous voice there, but Romano's reaction to it, and I think Mary Tam is underplaying it as well, is essentially to say, are you all right? <laughs> And he says, well, of course I'm all right. And that diffuses the tension and it ends up being a joke, but it's not a joke on the page. And you're right. That's a very interesting moment (sighs) in an otherwise uninteresting book. The Black Guardian, what did we think? Do we think he's actually a threat to the Doctor and company after all of this? Clocked in. He threatened the Doctor and the universe. He clocked out. <laughs> yeah, it felt like a Scooby-Doo villain to me. He's a developer. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Even down to the disguise. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm I... going to trick you. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was a close one there. I almost, I almost got you. Uh, I would have had that key to time where it weren't for those meddling kids. Yeah, it does kind of feel that way. And unfortunately, you don't get Valentine Dial's performance there, and he sells it. We don't see a demonic face. We simply have the BBC effect of having a positive image go to a negative image, which really isn't bad. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, and it's much better than the way the Guardians are depicted in later stories. <laughs> yeah. oh, God, I don't want to talk about that just yet. I really don't. <laughs> Dear God, no. And we also get the introduction of the randomizer, which is not as random as it appears, and it'll get bypassed at least three times in the next season before they finally do away with it. I thought it was a nice device to replace the one we had for the first few seasons, which is the doctor's not very good at driving. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Because he does seem like he can steer the TARDIS these days. Not without help still. So, yeah. Anything else we want to say? I thought that the rockets hitting the... The shadow satellite? Well, they they basically bounce off of a, a, a force field. Yeah. So stupid. 
Yes. Like, like the impossibility that they're aimed at a planet and they they will hit this thing, bounce off, and go straight for this black asteroid yes. and hit it. It is so improbable, but okay. And the amount of times in previous stories and in future stories where the Doctor doing something like that would have saved the day? Yeah. Oh, it's like, okay, you, you forgot about this control for however many hundred years and you're going to proceed to forget about it from now on yeah it's yeah. you're right it's it's a deus ex machina which is or actually a machina ex machina which is just really stupid if you think about it well that was your mistake you thought about it yeah well <laughs> we're told multiple times too that the asteroid is like in the middle of the two planets that are millions of miles apart uh-huh. so like how fast are these fucking rockets going yeah, and for that matter, if we talk about astronomy and we talk about the Goldilocks effect of a planet being just right in just the right distance from the sun and all that, are Atrios and Zeos on the same orbit, or are they on different orbits? Do they have dramatically different clients? Well, who cares, really? Yeah. Because... What brought them to war in the first place? Who knows? Who cares? How long is the marshal? I have a theory about the marshal. I think the marshal has been promoted to the limit of his own incompetence because all the other good soldiers in the war probably end up getting killed and all the military leaders and the marshal's just the only schlub who happens to be around to take over. Because I don't think he was installed by the Shadow. I think that he happened to be in charge and the Shadow came along and said, Oh good, they already have an incompetent in charge. Let's go ahead and pull the whole Russia and Trump thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It's not proven yet. Let me use this to my advantage. (laughs) Yes. And the fact that I have to come up with theories like that means that there's just nothing here in this book to really do anything with, which is a shame. Two two other things. The doctor telling Drax that it's synoptic adhesion that is messing up his his thing. <laughs> yes. And he does and Drax doesn't believe him. He's like, No, it's this other thing. It has to be. It's always this other thing. And then K9 comes later and says, No, it's synoptic adhesion. that's what it is that's just a moment of uh, yeah a little fun uh recall but then the bit of weight that's kind of added with the shadow where he says i am the shadow the shadow that accompanies you all yeah and it's this moment of like really heavy just uh... there's the implication that he's the personification of death with a line like that yeah you're in the valley of the shadow of death yes and it's like well okay go somewhere with that but no he's basically just a minion of the black guardian who happens to have his own weird minions and we have no idea where they came from whether they are former zeons which would have been just horrific yeah it's once again a a hint of a more interesting development but just to the hint that was the extent of it yeah i mean when we have this this whole story about two planets destroying each other with with atomic missiles like that's a whole play on world war ii and the manhattan project and just an armageddon yeah an armageddon armageddon yes exactly but it's not it's not there yeah just a little kind of throwaway line almost yeah, instead of the word Armageddon being given the weight that it could possibly have in the story, which would be total destruction of everything, it's instead reduced to <laughs> a safe word. <laughs> and if anyone doesn't get the reference, just 
Google Armageddon and safe word, and you'll probably find it quite soon. Armageddon! 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 God, I can't believe I just made reference to that on the podcast, but hey, there we go. Yeah, it's diminished. Yeah, exactly. Anything else you want to say before we go to Goodreads? I think that's about it. I think we've covered everything that I had. Okay. I can promise you this. There are better times ahead. (laughs) (laughs) The books that we will have after this, there will still be some stinkers, but by and large, we've, we've come through the valley of the shadow of death and we've feared no evil. We've just feared bad prose mostly. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews, the book written by other readers that fall with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.37 which is a good bit higher than the previous one, even, which is surprising. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives it three stars and says, A really good read would have loved to have known more about the Shadow. Clever plot. I can see some similarities with the Flux, but I don't know if that's just me. I I think it's just you, Damon, (laughs) because I'm thinking over the Flux in my head and I'm like, I'm not quite seeing it, but there we go. Also in our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three stars and says, When this story was first broadcast, I was a little disappointed. For me, the preceding stories had their highs and lows, but this one didn't have many highs, and it took the novelization to get me to appreciate the actual story. I still think the same, broadly speaking, though my views on the story's flaws have mellowed. One thing that irritated me then, but doesn't now, is the comedy cockney Time Lord Drax. These days, we're accustomed to hearing regional accents in Doctor Who. Even the Doctor uses one, and a different one after each generation. But in the 1970s, it felt out of place. Time Lords were lofty characters who used received pronunciation. Only common bit-part characters actually spoke in a common fashion, usually for comic effect. In any case, even when I first read it, the book took the edge off my irritation. The production values bothered me on first viewing, too, being very obviously studio with no location shooting, and the book helped there. My opinion has mellowed there as well, though. There's just one thing that really annoys me. How does the miniaturizing gun change size? (laughs) The gun changes the size of whatever it's pointed at, and it's never pointed at itself, obviously. It's never explained, on screen or in prose. As the script is by the Bristol Boys, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, it's not surprising that Terrence Dix doesn't add a line to account for this, as he rarely puts in too much effort for them. What is surprising is that, apart from the gun, I really enjoyed this book. And finally, just for the minority opinion, a reader named Paul on Goodreads gives it one star and says... I love the idea of the key to time season of Doctor Who, the premise of having a story art that links all the season together. I enjoy all the stories leading up to this to varying degrees. Even the much maligned power of Kroll gains brownie points for being the first story I ever watched. However, Armageddon Factor is just so flat and lifeless in both TV and novelization forms that this brave season idea ends with a whimper and lingers like a bad fart. (laughs) 
such a disappointing end to a great premise. Evocative, Paul. Yeah. Very evocative. More so than anything that we read in this book. <laughs> yes, I'd say so. All right, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'll give it a 2.5. I'll go, I'll go right down the middle. Just because I wanted it to be so much more than it was. And it's nowhere near some of the horrible books that we have read, but it doesn't hold together for me. It just, it, it is so uninspiring and there are so many missed opportunities. Okay. And Alice? Uh, unlike Dalton, I found myself unburdened by high expectations. <laughs> so it, it didn't really let me down. No, I, I do like the, the, uh, the, the reviewers talking about it being entirely in studio. And I was thinking, you know, sort of like, are there or no orphanages? Are there no workhouses? Are there no quarries? <laughs> are there no disused military bases? <laughs> I'm going to go 1.5, and it's not a, an especially vindictive 1.5. It didn't hurt me, and like I said, it was inoffensive. It was just eh, not much there. Okay. And as for me, I'm probably going to surprise everybody by giving this a 3. And the main reason I gave it a 3 is because the first time through, I actually enjoyed it. It was only the second time through that I started noticing all the plot holes that are very definitely there. And even then, it is a better experience to sit through a 127-page novelization of the story than sit through six 22-minute episodes of it. It really is a painful story to watch because there's simply not enough given to Mary Tam. There's just enough given to K-9, but it's for laughs. Everything's given to Tom Baker, and it's for laughs. And I would much rather have this version of the story than the one we actually got. Unfortunately, the one on TV is the actual canonical version, if there is such a thing. So, yeah, three stars. <laughs> well, thank you both. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we're starting a new season in this new year, starting with Terrence Dick's novelization of Destiny of the Daleks. Hmm, I wonder who the villains are going to be in that one. <laughs> Cybermen. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the very concept of destiny. <laughs> yeah. Santarans, we haven't heard from them in a while. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the podcast so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.